Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And our special guest from precode.com with a little hyphen there, Danny Reed. Hey. All the way from Tokyo, I might add. Yes. So you are in America because you're on a little bit of a uh, road trip. What'd uh, you call it? Air trip. But I, air I, trip. I'd say it's a jaunt. I went to uh, TCM Film Fest in Los Angeles for a couple of days, and then my friends in California also have their spring break coming up. So in between that, I wanted to go around and visit a bunch of people. So this is really a trip where I get to meet all the people I knew online, in face, in person. So Yeah, we've known you on Twitter for a little while now, and Brad Avery interviewed you for the site not too long ago. So if you haven't read that, check that out. Great thing about Danny is he's a expert on pre-code films. Would you call yourself an expert at this point? Or? I, I like the term enthusiast because that lowers the expectations. Of <laughs> right. Yeah. You yeah. want them going in thinking you've seen like two and then they go to the site and they see. <laughs> well, see that way when like, like John's like names ones I haven't seen, so I just be like, oh, you know, I like pre-code. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that you have precode.com. Yeah. You know? No, um, I was really like researching marketing. I was trying to find a way to brand myself when I started the site. And precodehollywood.com was already taken by a guy who just did like two posts and never did anything with it. Mm. So it was like short and simple. And then the best part is whenever somebody types out the name of my site, it's a link automatically. So, yeah. Yeah. There you go. So uh, quickly, how was uh, TCM Fest? Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, there was a lot of really cool showings. They did um, some interesting stuff like uh, a presentation called Dawn of Technicolor where they went through and showed clips from movies that are about 80 years old. They, the book came out recently. I reviewed it for my site. Um, it talks about the origins of the company Technicolor from 1915 to 1935, and that's when they kind of perfected their two-strip process. And it goes into just how difficult it is to put color on film mm. and like how much like effort it took even just to film it. Like It took so much lighting that it would like set people's hair on fire just because it was so warm. Jesus. Is um, that a good book? That sounds really interesting. It's, it's kind of dry. Like They... They talk about people, but they don't really go into their lives at all. Right. So it's, it's much once you get past like the first half, which is very technical. Like here are the difficulties they faced, and goes into each and every one. Once you kind of get into the narrative where they have Technicolor and goes from there, it's it's fascinating. And it also it has a listing of every single two strip Technicolor short from the beginning to 1935. Oh wow! Are you going to try to watch them all now? You should do like a <laughs> personal challenge. Uh, the ones that survive, probably. That's but. probably like two. No, no, there's a ton. It, um, like they talk about in the book, they only thought like there were 70 maybe. And then they do all this research and there's like 200 clips or shorts or whatever that they use Technicolor in. All right, so you are here today because we're going to discuss the films of 1933. We previously did this sort of uh, exploring a year thing with uh, 1977, which is a really good episode. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out, listener. But yeah, you, don't, don't bother listening to the rest of this. Just go there. Yeah, just go there. <laughs> And um, I'm not that well-versed in 1933. I mean, the big ones are King Kong, Duck Soup, Son of Kong. You know, those are the ones that I've seen. These guys have seen a lot more than I have. And I'm sort of in the, uh, the audience member's seat on this one for a lot of this. And I can't wait to learn more about the year because apparently it was a very, very important year. I think we'll uh, start it off with King Kong. But before we get into that... Sell me on 1933 as a year. Sell me and the rest of our listeners right now. Why is 33 important, would you say? Well, I'd like to tackle sort of the year itself, and then I'd like Danny to sort of give an overview of what pre-code means. 33 was uh, kind of the height of the pre-code era, which is uh, 
he'll do it. But um, <laughs> there's this famous thing that 1939 was the greatest year for film, right? And everybody knows, you know, films of 39, you had um, Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach, this and that. Film Forum a couple of years ago, I thought it was one of the coolest things they ever did. They did a series on 1933 that, Cody, you'll remember we saw King Kong that that time. Yeah, and that was that was one of the best yeah. experiences I've ever had, and, actually. And their um, assertion with it was, what if 33 was a better year than 39? What if 33 was really the golden era or the golden year of the golden era of filmmaking? And I, I that always sort of stuck with me. And beyond that, historically, 33 is a really interesting year. It's the year both FDR and Hitler rose to power, and it's the year Prohibition ended and the Dust Bowl began. So in a lot of ways, the films of 33, it's the first time you're really watching movies from the same sort of breadth of history that we're still in. Mm. It's kind of the beginning of, of modernity in the sense of, um, you know, a strong executive branch in America and um, the, uh, the European upheaval that there's still sort of in the shadow of, and it was, um, it was the dawn of the skyscrapers, the Empire State Building, so famous in King Kong, was only two years old when King Kong came out. It was wow. completed, yeah, yeah, it was completed in 31. So King Kong is actually only the second movie I'm aware of to even feature skyscrapers in any meaningful way. The first was Manhattan Tower in 32. I didn't even realize that. I always assumed, you know, you watch King Kong, you just assume the Empire State Building's been there forever, and that's already yeah. like this huge popular landmark and i'm sure it was popular but it just feels like a staple but, you know? yeah yeah and it, it's um it's sort of the beginning of the of the time that we can look at and like know that we're in place and you know it's the first kind of generation that you'd still have relatives who you would have spoken to who were alive then you know and it, it's kind of 33 is somewhat arbitrary in the sense that picking any 365 day span is but, but 33, I think, is a really interesting starting point to just say, maybe this is when modern history and modern filmmaking began. Mm. And a big part of that was that it was part of what's called the pre-code era, which, why don't you uh, take over here? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, the movie industry was rocked by a bunch of scandals in the early 1920s. Uh, most famous one was Fatty Arbuckle's three trials for rape and murder. Was uh, that the Coke bottle thing? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Um, he was not guilty or declared not guilty. Uh -huh. So, but that um, still that still surrounds him, right? Yes, still does. He eventually he got redemption in the early '30s. He made some Warner Brothers shorts, and they were like the day they gave him a feature film contract, he died. It was a sad ending. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, just Google it. We're not going to say any more of that. Yeah, but that wasn't the only <laughs> it's a scandal. Little, yeah. It's a little gross. Like yeah, oh, yeah. So like early th early '20s, there's a ton of scandals. Like uh, some woman overdoses. I think it was Lee Gish's brother's girlfriend overdoses on like his syphilis medicine and like William Reed dies in an sanitarium having gone mad from drug addiction. It's like all these scandals hit Hollywood at once. So what they do is they hire William Hayes, who's the postmaster general under Harding, which I guess gave him a good reputation. Um, Protestant, uh, very religious and basically ask him to go clean up Hollywood. He basically becomes a cheerleader for Hollywood more or less. Like he works with the industry, he works with civic groups to kind of try and, make them happy because movie theaters had a really bad reputation. They're very dark, very smelly, very cramped. So as he's doing this, he keeps trying to get the studios to obey some sort of rules. Like he comes up with a list of do's and don'ts, which is just like, don't show child's genitalia. Don't show off nudity. You know, nobody listens. Well, hopefully, you know, some of them listen. To hopefully it. they listen to the first one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but so he has real trouble getting the studios to enforce any kind of self-regulation. And in this time, um, I think in 1911, there was a court case that went to the Supreme Court that movies are not considered free speech. Mm. So basically at any time, the government can just step in and say, no, you, you know, we can do whatever we want. You can only make this. So theaters, are, the movie uh, studios are kind of scared of that, but it's not really until 1930 when it kind of comes to a head and some Catholics get together. It's uh, Daniel Lord and Martin Quigley, who's a, a magazine editor, came together and wrote the Motion Picture Production Code, which is a lot longer. It actually forbids a lot more stuff than the do's and don'ts did, but it's more of a, a statement of purpose. It's got a lot of uh, very interesting details, including one, it lists the things you can't do. It says things you really should try not to do. Um, the most important one is it says that no motion picture should lower the standards of the audience that watches it, which hmm. can be taken in so many ways. That's very subjective. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's reason why after the period we get through, you'll see a lot of times the villain always has to pay for his crimes. Hmm. Um, but OK, going back. So they write the motion picture production code. All the studios say, OK, sure. Why not? We'll we'll observe this production code, whatever. So from 1930. 30, which I think March 31st, that's actually yesterday was the 85th anniversary of that. Wow, we should have done this yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Too busy drinking. Um, (laughs) So we, uh, from that point until July 1st, 1934, that's the pre-code era. That's when uh, studios, the production code was there and they're supposed to be observing it, but they don't. And then in 1934, what happens is because of a series of films, which actually mostly came out in 1933, so we'll be talking about a couple of them. Joseph Breen, who is an advertising man on the West Coast branch of the PC, the Production Code Administration, he comes in and he manages to get the Catholics together and has them form the Legion of Decency. And so the Catholics only have a leverage point against the studios, basically saying, we're going to boycott and go after any movie we don't approve of. So Breen kind of plays the Production Code Administration, the Legion off of each other. And so when he does that, he kind of becomes the head of the PCA. And then suddenly all studios, instead of having to, you know, just submit their movies when they're done and get cuts, they'd have to submit the script and every single step of the process would have to be approved by the PCA. So after 1934, every movie you see in some form is being censored up until like early 60s when it starts falling apart. Then 1967 is when they stopped doing it with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm. So really that period 1930 to 34 is what we call pre-code Hollywood. At the same time as this and what I, I, you rarely hear it talked about, but I think is one of the most interesting things about having this happen when it did you also have the dawn of sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just about to say, uh, that's, um, that's really fascinating, too, is that the industry is undergoing such a big transition and the depression is happening at the same yeah. time. So the studios are hit like right when they're spending, like Warner Brothers is just spitting money at every single thing it can find because it did Jazz Singer and made it hand over fist. And then audiences plummet from like 10 million people a week to like, like half that. And so in 1933, unemployment's at 25% in the country. So the era, it's like a very brief four-year gap, but it's completely different. Like a 1930 movie, you can definitely tell a difference of between 1930 and 1933 film. Mm. Yeah, they 33, 32 is really, I feel like, when they started to... They got it right. Yeah, they started to figure out what you could do with sound, mm-hmm. which is not... Um, it's hard, I think, for people who don't really know this era of film because it's hard to really understand how unintuitive a lot of it was. Yeah. But if you watch stuff from, say, 29 or 30, you have those sort of like dead spots where um, you'd hear it in old movies when you were watching them on TV where it would just like go quiet for a long time. Right. There'd just be sort of one line that would be really muffled and kind of weird and then it would be quiet again because they didn't know what to do. 33, they had sort of figured out um, the polish of sound and you have this really interesting sound design starting to come in too. Well, yeah, King Kong sounds fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. 
King Kong's a great example. You have the um, you have the the manufactured sound design of King Kong's noises. Right. I can't think offhand of anything that did that before King Kong that had a uh, fully animated character who had fully artificial noises. Yeah, King Kong. King Kong's your favorite of the year, right? Oh, big time. Yeah, we uh, we saw that in theaters, and man, the best way to see that movie is to look up at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can't really look at it straight on at a TV or your laptop or whatever. You got to be in a theater and you got to be in a seat where your your head is craned slightly. You can't look at King Kong straight on. It's just not the same experience. And this is a movie that I'd seen many times before on TV growing up, more than I can count. But seeing it in that theater and the brutality of it, that's a brutal fucking movie. The violence <laughs> yeah. in that movie... Yeah, when the dinosaur's jaw gets ripped. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, snaps it. The open whole and then audience flinches. Like, Ugh. yeah, yeah, because it's so so visceral too. Like, you don't get that very much nowadays because you feel like it. The only thing I can compare that to is uh, that great episode of Deadwood. I think season three, where there's that very brutal two guys going at it in the dirt, fighting like their life depends on it, and just ripping each other apart. Like that's that's one of the only examples I can think of that makes me cringe as much as that dinosaur jaw rip and those fucking battles. And it's incredible, man. You know what else is fun about early 30s movies is they hadn't perfected what a punch sounds like yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it does just sound like people punching. It's very weird after, you know, decades of the fake meat hitting each other or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's really subtle, mm -hmm. which um, sometimes it'll jump out at you. Like there's one part in um, Island of Lost Souls Easily one of my maybe 20 favorite horror movies ever. I, I think Island of Lost Souls is just an incredible movie. There's one part where one guy is getting kicked off of a boat. So the... Um, the That's towards the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the first yeah. man yeah. picks him up and he just sort of like overhead tosses him onto the dock. And you don't hear anything except just this really light crack of his head hitting the wood of the dock. <laughs> oh, man. And it's just... In any movie now, it would be such a loud thing. Yeah. But it... it just the subtlety of that really gets you that just like you feel that like oh yeah so you pointed out something great to me after we we saw king kong and i feel like really seeing that in theaters things come out at you that you may not have noticed before and yeah have, like the fact that there's so much great depression in it yeah mm -hmm. absolutely and um i mean also that opening scene the the self-referential quality of that opening scene where they're discussing what a movie should be yeah i mean it's it's almost charlie kaufman-esque yeah, and they're talking about like how stupid it would be to put a romantic lead in the movie they're about to make. Yeah. And then the romantic <laughs> lead walks in. It's, yeah. I never picked up on any of that until I saw it in theaters. It's wonderful. And you had a great observation, which is uh, that basically every character is King Kong in that movie. They all have a King Kong arc in a sense. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting movie uh, structurally. King Kong's kind of fascinating because a lot of people are right about it and it feels like nobody's ever like mastered King Kong, mm. which is kind of cool because it it's, feels larger than any critique of it. So there's the very famous and really insightful um, Inglorious Bastards critique where it's sort of a film about slavery. Sure. And there's a lot of sort of like economic takes on King Kong. But one that, thing that I, I really sticks with me is that the entire movie plays out twice. Mm -hmm. You have um, the story of them capturing and then knocking down King Kong on Skull Island and tying him up. And then you have the story of it all happening again in New York. And uh, I wrote a whole piece about this for Shot Context that I don't I don't want to just sort of burn airtime because there's so much to talk about with this we'll pull year. Up but, a, uh, we'll put up a link to that. 
Yeah, but it, it's it a was a great article, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was a really fun one to write. And there's just a lot of sort of really interesting, um, I guess because it was the 30s, you don't think about it. It's really a modernist movie. Mm. And it, it plays with a lot of the the sort of modernist themes that like Wolf and Joyce and Elliot and all them were playing with at the time where there's a lot of this sort of um, this sort of sense of metatextuality in it and this sense of um, of repeating things to see what happens when they're done somewhere else. And there's a lot of really interesting diffusion in the lines between the characters. So the, the romantic lead of it uh, is shown over and over in poses in the first act that you see King Kong in, in the third act. Right. And Mm -hmm. then Fay Ray, the, the big Fay Ray moment is when she's tied to these sort of cross beams and there's a crowd below her and she's screaming. And then that is exactly repeated when King Kong is in Radio City Music Hall and he's tied with his arms up and there's a crowd below him and he's screaming. Yeah. And then King Kong is really um, structurally really interesting. I can think of only one other movie like that from that time. And that's Gold Diggers in 1933. Oh, man. Because I know you don't really think about it, but it's a movie that's very much the first act is about the depression and how everybody's yeah. like, on the skids. And then they're like, what are we going to do? We got, you know, you got to lift people up. You got to make something not about, about the depression. And then the, second and third act of the movie are all about these glorious like exciting adventures of these people who suddenly have money and they're living this glamorous life and then it ends with forgotten man which is like by the way this was us just telling you like we 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 know you we understand what's going on yeah yeah and there's this sort of like both of them climax with this idea of spectacle being what's going to beat the depression mm. and in both cases it sort of doesn't yeah which is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's like the end of that jazz age thing. You know, they had so much invested in that kind of broad spectacle and that, and now they're societally watching it not work anymore. Yeah. There's nothing they can do. But that's, that's the only thing they can think to do. And yeah, that's such a good double feature. I never thought of that. Yeah. Is that one of your favorites of the year? Yeah. Oh, I love gold diggers. It's, it's got some of the best stars of the time. Like Warren Williams, huge. He's in a lot of great, he's in a, He's pretty much considered the epitome of a pre-code star because he's so often this complete asshole, essentially. Mm. But he's still the hero of the movie. Like in so many films, like uh, The Mouthpiece, Match King, uh, Dark Horse, he's just this this huckster. And in, like in Dark Horse, he basically sells the worst governor, govern, gubernatorial candidate he can to the people of the state. And he wins at the end. It's a happy ending, but it's Guy Kibbe getting elected the governor. And he's spent the whole movie just leeching on every single woman and has no idea what politics is. Um, so Warren William, um, another 33 movie he's in is Employee's Entrance, which is very famous because he is the manager of a department store. He's a very smart, very ruthless manager. But the problem is he's also very lecherous and he's stuck under very incompetent owners. The owners just keep showing up and quoting Thomas Jefferson and George Washington at him. And uh, Warren William eventually, despite them, saves the department store and saves all of everybody's lives. But also during the movie, he manages to, the main romantic couple is Wallace Ford and Loretta Young. And Warren William manages to rape Loretta Young halfway through. Jesus. And there's no punishment. Like Loretta Young shows up to his office later. He's like, by the way, you can go get with your boyfriend now. I'm sorry, whatever. And just goes, you know, mm. it ends with him picking up a Pomeranian and throwing it in the garbage can. Just that's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> Man. It's dark. It's very, uh, very anti-capitalist in a way. It's about the people who've, because the owners, the people with the big money, the old money, they're the idiots. Whereas Warren William, the guy who actually does the work and fixes things, he's the hero despite being a very unsavory person. Mm-hmm. 33 had a lot of like workplace movies. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Like uh Babyface, mm. which is one of my f- absolute <laughs> favorites. It's Baby hard. Fa- it's hard to not to like Babyface. Yeah. yeah. Babyface is crazy, but it's, it's really kind of a, 
a similar story to that, except it's a woman mm. in Babyface. It's Barbara Stanwyck, and um, it, it's about her just sort of giving up on the rules of society because she's been dicked around so long. Well, her dad climbed her to the top. Yeah. yeah, her dad pimped her out. And then you literally see her climbing her way to the top of the building. Like it zooms outside the building, goes up another level, and there she is with a new guy. And you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of them is John Wayne. Yeah, when he's really uh, <laughs> yeah. And then it's, doesn't she pimp out her um her sidekick? What's uh, her name? She's such a good actress. Teresa Harris. Teresa Harris. I love Teresa Harris. Oh, she's great. Yeah. She um she should be second build in Babyface, but because she was black, she's like eighth build. Yeah. But it's really as much Teresa Harris's movie. I think as Stanwyck. Yeah. There's a scene in Babyface where they need to take a train into the city. And Teresa Harris goes off and you just watch her singing while Barbara Stanwyck takes the guard off into the corner. Yeah, and you just see the the cigarette lighting and then it all goes black. Yeah, it's just not even suggestive. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, that's the type of stuff that drove Breen crazy. (laughs) No no wonder. So would that be a good back-to-back with uh, the previous one? Employee's Entrance, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, Employee's Entrance has a good matchup in an an MGM film called Skyscraper Souls, which I think came out either earlier or later, so I don't think it counts for this. Mm-hmm. But they're actually both Warren was 32. William. Yeah, both Warren William as an executive. And it's just fascinating to watch the difference between a Warner Brothers and an MGM movie with essentially the same plots. There's a Poverty Row movie with the same plot, too. Yeah. It, it was the Poverty Row version of Skyscraper Souls. Mm. It's called um, Manhattan Tower. I think I was talking to somebody about that earlier. I haven't seen that, though. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's... um. All the exteriors are the the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. Then the interiors are these sets, but the sets are really good. Mm. They're, they're just these sort of really interesting Art Deco things. And they they shoot a lot of the movie, um, like they'll do scene transitions vertically. Oh, okay. So they'll just sort of pull the camera up and then it'll like fade to the next floor up or down. Mm. It's That's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's a good little movie. Yeah. But that's almost like a Wes Anderson move, kind of. Yeah. Like zooming around, like almost like a cross section. Well, Anderson is, I think he's such a child of that sort of like really structural 30s thing where you'd see in like Gold Diggers at 33 where compositions like people would be a part of the composition. Yeah. Mm. And you can make compositions out of where somebody is um, standing even. And and the, and the camera is this um, sort of block that just like moves among. Right. Yeah. So you were saying the difference between WB and MGM. What what was the main difference between how they tackled that? Well, each studio had pretty much their own kind of house style at the time. So there's mm-hmm. five major studios and three minor studios. So Warner Brothers was always considered the more gritty ones. They put out stuff like uh, Cagney movies, uh, Joan Blondell movies. They put out the Busby Berkeley musicals, which was atypical of them. But then MGM also... MGM was the more stars than there are in heaven. So they always put out the big prestige projects. In 33, they did Dinner at 8. You know, stuff like that. And then... Do you like that one? It's it's okay. Like, the last line is great. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, like, that's one of those movies that I saw and then it just sort of, like, went right through me. Yeah, that's a weird one because I think that Grand Hotel is so beloved that people want to like Dinner at 8. Yeah. But just, it doesn't really work. And there's too much, I don't know, self-referentialness with the John Barrymore stuff, I think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, um... What the hell was I talking about? Difference between WB oh, and MGM. Okay. okay, so MGM is the very much the glamour studio. Paramount is like Paramount during the early 30s, like went to receivership. So it was the crazy, nobody had any idea what anybody else was doing. So you have all the great comedy uh, players there. So you have like WC Fields, the Marx Brothers, mm. just everybody's going berserk. Budgets are going out of control. Like at one point, I don't even know if it's in the early 30s or the late 30s, but Lubitsch is put in charge of the studio. That's just, <laughs> they're trying everything. Um, so Paramount, Paramount and Warner Brothers were the two most often cited for uh, code violations. And if you watch any of those movies, you understand why. 
and then RKO was weird because they were just starting out. They only they only started in 1930, 1929. Right. They had King Kong. They had King Kong and they were kind of the adventure studio. Like they did that. The most dangerous game was 32. Yeah. Um, Which was the same crew as King Kong. It was yeah. basically, it was the same sets even as King yeah. Kong. And then 33 is also near the end. They put out Flying Down to Rio, which is their big Busby Berkeley ripoff, which is great. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, because that's the end. The end is just chorus girls and airplanes flying through and Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire going nuts. Yeah, that one's a blast. Um, who's the other studio? Universal. Right? Universal. Oh, actually, Universal is considered one of the minor ones. They uh, they started killing it in this era, oh, though. I mean, I don't know. I'm Frankenstein was 31. Dracula was 31. Yeah, they had like a lot of my favorites from this year are them. Well, yeah. really, just the Invisible Man, but <laughs> well, Kiss that before the mirror too. Yeah, because for the mirrors, it's good. Yeah, I love that. I actually just saw that a couple weeks ago. Which one's that one? It's uh, James Whale, the guy who directed um, Frankenstein, who I've gone on and on about mm -hmm. on this podcast before. I love James Whale. He did two movies in 33. One of them was Invisible Man, which is um, probably, I would say, his second best horror movie oh, yeah. uh, behind the original Frankenstein. It's so funny. It's like a... You can see everything Bugs Bunny would do. Claude Rains <laughs> right. does as the Invisible Man in The Invisible Man. And his other one was a uh, sort of a, a, a drama called Kiss Before the Mirror, which was uh, a little more down to earth. He didn't really like making horror movies, hmm. but he was very good at it. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think Kiss Before the Mirror is probably the more, the one of the two that was closer to his heart, if I had to guess. Do you think that uh, because he didn't like making them, he added something to it? Well, he did. He added disdain. Right. So there's... Um, <laughs> Like the famous story with the Bride of Frankenstein was that he so desperately didn't want to do it that the only way he did it was when Universal told him you can make anything and we mm. won't we won't stop you at all. So he made um, Bride of Frankenstein was thirty five and it's like even if it came out in the pre code era it would have been a shock. Yeah, that movie is they go all over the place with that wow. one, <laughs> and it, it was just because he didn't give a shit, you know. Mm. Yeah. But Kiss Before the Mirror, I'm really glad you like that. Not a lot of people have seen it. It doesn't get a lot of Well, that's the problem is a lot of Universal and Paramount stuff they don't really promote. Like those are harder to find on video. Warner Brothers has Warner Archives. They yeah. release and they also Warner Brothers owns the MGM back catalog and the RKO back catalogs. So those are fairly easy to get a hold of. But Universal owns the old Paramount movies and their old movies. And they don't have like a video on demand service. And then Fox is just 20th Century Fox pretends like Fox Films doesn't exist for the most part. <laughs> wow. Like it's the hundredth anniversary of Fox Films and you, nothing. Really? Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> it's frustrating. Yeah. yeah, the the only reason I know Kiss Before the Mirror is because um I tracked down all the whales once mm. and it was very hard to find. I had to, I had to get a bootleg of it. I don't even know if it has it had like an official DVD. I am not the person to ask. <laughs> I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it uh, capped out at VHS. Yeah, I think I found it on YouTube at one point. Yeah, it's one of those that you just sort of gotta like drift to. Yeah, but no, Frank Morgan. Like after 1934, he becomes stereotyped in these awful comedic parts. And I was that's all. Like for a year, I just did 1934 movies. So now I'm going back and I saw him in like Strange Interlude and I saw him in this. And he's a pretty solid dramatic actor. Like, yeah, he's very convincing. Like he plays. You want to go into Kiss Before the Mirror? Yeah, let's do it, man. Okay. He plays an attorney who's defending his friend who murdered his wife. Not, he, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> it's complicated. But his friend It's tells, all very complicated. Yes. His friend tells him the story of how he realized his wife was cheating on him because he saw, he gave her a kiss in front of the mirror and she freaked out because he messed up her makeup. And he realizes, oh, she's trying to look pretty for someone else. And he follows her and kills her. And then it's all about whether or not that was pre premeditated murder because the guy had a gun on him at the time and everything. Mm. 
Then Frank Morgan goes home and he's talking to his wife, who's Nancy Carroll, who's great. Yeah. She's a lot of Paramounts this Spectacular time. Spectacular acting in that movie. Yeah, yeah. So well, Nick, well, I think isn't appreciated well enough as an actor's director. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Um, So uh, he goes up, sneaks behind his wife and does the same thing. And she has the exact same reaction. And Frank Morgan flips out because he's like, oh, my God, what if my wife is cheating on me? So the rest of the movie is him figuring out, yes, his wife is cheating on him. And he slowly realizes that if he can get his friend off for murder, like even if it is premeditated, if he can get his friend off, then he could get himself off too. Wow. Like he can, so he's like, I will get you free no matter what. If I have to lie, if I have to cheat, if I have to kill. And if I can do that, I will kill my wife. That's a great fucking plot. It, it's just like the whole last act is in a courtroom and it's a oh, whale does this great shot where he does like a 360 of the entire courtroom and everyone yeah. is just riveted by Frank Morgan, except Nancy Carroll, who is like, like shaking. She's yeah, it's like, like she's, a Hitchcock shot. Yeah, mm. she's figured it out. She's figured out that he knows. And she knows he has a gun, too, at this point. Yeah, it's it's really tense. It's great. Well, there's That's another, a great pick, yeah. There's another great one we were talking about last night with a very similar... It didn't even occur to me that they have such a similar um, story structure from that year, Sin of Nora Moran. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is also... Um, that's uh, Zita Johan plays a woman who is in... Uh, she's on death row and it's all told in like flashbacks why she's there and why she should i don't want to say get off but you know yeah. well it's be pardoned well she kind of is innocent it's it's a it's it's Moran's fascinating because it's told by the ambitious district attorney to the wife of the governor like explaining oh, wait, why she totally yeah she gets boned by the uh yeah, she sleeps yeah, with the yeah. governor. Yeah, yeah. So it's all it's all like you can read it as just this district attorney, this ambitious guy trying to justify why he let this innocent girl die. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I had it backwards in my head. Yeah, she uh she gets totally fucking boned. Yeah. And then the power and the glory the same year, which is um another employee's entry entrance style kind of rise of power of a of a businessman movie. Um and that that one's all told in flashbacks, and it's they say it, the structure of it was the inspiration for Citizen Kane, mm. which I didn't believe until I saw it. And then you watch it, and you're like, yeah, that's that moves a lot like Kane, <laughs> not as good, but you know, that was another one that was hard to find for a long time. Uh, I still can't find Power and the Glory. I yeah, I'll have to send you it. It's it's worth a watch. It's not great. Well, it's Spencer Tracy, and like yeah, the early 30s Spencer Tracy does not give a shit. <laughs> like there's except for Man's Castle. Like Man's Castle Ooh. and Me and My Gal. Those are probably the only two good Spencer Tracy movies. That are like I those. love Man's Castle. And I think a lot of that is um, on the credit of the director, Borzaghi, who's another one that if you've listened to any yeah, single big, episode uh, of this. Big yeah. D'Amico favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Go on yeah. with Borzaghi. Man's Castle is one of his big successes. And um, Spencer Tracy's in it. It's just a wonderful, very like... Yeah, it captures kind of his aloofness and does something with it. Where yeah. most other times it's like, he's a sarcastic weirdo. Yeah. Um, no, that Which one. Which is funny because he became so good later in his life. Yeah. Yeah. But no, early 30s, they just didn't know what to do with him. That's like with Pat O'Brien. They tried to make him into James Cagney. When he, yeah. He really or even isn't. John Wayne in this era. Mm -hmm. When uh, this, this would have been right after um, the Wellman movie he made that was a total bomb in 31. And then he just got lost in poverty row until ford pulled him out in 39 I think it's big trail yeah big trail yeah because yeah. just nobody knew what to do with him oh it wasn't well but it was raul walsh right? yeah 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 and uh, some of them they just didn't know what to do with yeah so that's kind of also what's fun about early 30s movies is you get to see a lot of people it's a it's a really big transition because this end of the sound era is there you see john gilbert's last few films uh who we'll get to here in a minute um, and then you also get these other stars, the talkie stars, like Kirk Gable's first movie is in like 
30, 31 with Free Soul, he just kills it. And you get to see like the rise of Clark Gable. And oh, I've never seen that. Is that good? A Free Soul? Yeah. Um, it's an okay movie, but there are some moments that are amazing. Like Norma Shear in that film is just wearing like the most gorgeous outfits you will ever see. And she's just all in all out like seducing Clark Gable. Like she lays on the couch and just like motions <laughs> for him to come to her. And, is she wearing sheer outfits? Ah, yes. Um, <laughs> so no, Free Soul's a blast, but um, where's it going? Oh yeah, but uh, John Gilbert, like uh, the thing was with the coming of sound and the depression is that the studios, the real reason they'd done sound before, like on limited scale. But the real reason why it took off is because they could use it to break uh, musicians unions all across the country. Right. Like they no longer had to have live orchestras. And so that was kind of a cost cutting measure. And as they did that, and as they put the money into it, and as the depression hit, they found that they could cut star salaries because, you know, people like uh, Clara Bow were making money hand over fist because they knew how popular they were. And then this giant transition happens. They say, well, your voice isn't as good. We'll give you like half of what you used to get. Mm. Something yeah. Like that. So, which is now remembered as like a thing that killed a lot of careers, but it was sort of more of a, it was a power play almost. Yeah. It was a brilliant power play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stars in the 20s, though, I mean, they were making incredible amounts of money. Oh, God. You sit back and look at what, um, like, Fairbanks and them were raking in. It's, you don't see that kind of stuff again until, like, the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, there's some something I was reading that said, like, Bo was making, like, 12000 a week. And then, like, five, ten years later, Betty Davis is struggling to get 1200 a week. And she's the queen of the MGM lot or the Warner <laughs> Brothers lot, you know. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, so, anyway, back to John Gilbert, who's one of the stars who kind of got... You know, there's rumors that Louis B. Mayer fucked with his career or whatever. Uh, he went through some bad stuff. He made Downstairs in 32, which is a really dark, brilliant uh, movie. Yeah, it's um, a good one. But 33, he also made his last big film, which is Queen Christina. Queen which Christina. was the number yeah. one of the year, right? Yes. A lot of people would assume King Kong, biggest movie of the year, but no. No, women's Queen pictures. Um, most of the audience back in the early 30s was women. Really? Yeah. It was like 80% or something. Yeah. And it was a hugely feminist era for filmmaking as well. Yeah. You had, uh, I mean, Queen Christina alone, which Queen Christina, I, I just found out was a 33. Yeah. So I found an excuse to rewatch it this morning. <laughs> Holy shit. What a great movie. The whole premise is it's about um, Greta Garbo is a queen in, uh, in Sweden in the 1600s. She's a real historical figure, but I don't yeah. know anything about Swedish history, so I don't want to get... Well, I will say I was at the TCM Film Festival and they actually showed it. And they talk, uh, They had a historian come up and say, you know, the movie is pretty accurate in every single thing except Queen Christina in real life looked more like Danny DeVito. <laughs> but, so, yeah. Yeah, she, she falls in love with uh, a, a guy who comes... A Spanish envoy. Yeah, a Spanish envoy who comes to the kingdom to deliver a proposal from the king. So she falls in love with the envoy instead of the king. Mm. And uh, and then it's all about sort of the courtroom intrigue dealing with that. But it's just this amazing portrait of just like this woman who will not yeah, go out of the to, society. Yeah. You you just got to see it at the festival, huh? Yeah, it was great. They they even showed like a uh, a costume test before the film it was completely silent, but you get to see Garbo like kind of out of character, like being a little bit playful. And then she snaps into character. Mm. It's amazing. Like. The, the Academy of Motion Pictures like brought that and showed it to you right before. And because uh, Ruben Mamoulian directed it, and Mamoulian's just early 30s, he can't go wrong. Yeah, his Jekyll and Hyde is yeah, otherworldly. Oh if you ever need to learn anything about how to make a film, you watch Jekyll and Hyde because yeah. that's got everything. Um, and then he made another one. He made Song of Songs this year, too. Have you ever seen that? No. That's like the one Marlena Dietrich film she did without Sternberg of the year. And it's like she's a 
like a holy girl and then an artist is like i want to you're so perfect and pure i want to make a statue out of you but of course it has to be a nude statue <laughs> so the guy is like first he's very artistically and then you kind of see as the transitions her lose her innocence and become wildly in love with him and he really does this great thing where he you see her start start to disrobe and it cuts to a nude statue mm. and you see her take off her dress you cuts to the statue of the legs and the the sculptor is like working on the <laughs> He's working on the sculpture of Marlena Dietrich. He's just rubbing the breasts, <laughs> like, <laughs> like drooling, like, ah, it's, it's great. But um, it's, I got to say that it's a beautiful looking movie, too. It's great. Um, but Queen Christina is a lot of fun because the way that she meets the envoy, the way she meets Gilbert is that they go to an inn together and he thinks that she's a guy. Yeah, which and, does not sell at all. <laughs> it's like the you, one thing about it, she's got these like perfect eyebrows and it's fucking Greta Garbo. Yeah, you're not, it's not prime. like Superman. So you so will not you, believe Greta Garbo is a man. Is that your only complaint about the movie, I guess? Yeah, and it, it like doesn't even work as a complaint because you can almost like read it with the rest of the people in the inn yeah. kind of know and are just like okay. rolling with it. Because it, it does a lot of fun stuff with like gender and like people kind of knowing each other's secrets all through it. Yeah, is yeah. it kind of like the Phantom Menace, Amidala, Padme thing where it's like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. sort of like that. We're just yeah. like, all right, I'll take the ride with you. But they have good fun with it too. Like two guys getting a drunken brawl. Like I say, the queen has had six lovers this last year. I yeah, say the he's... queen's had five, and she's like, gentlemen, gentlemen, I work in the courts. The queen has had twelve lovers this yeah. last year, and everybody <laughs> just starts cheering and going crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, Queen Christine is a lot of fun. That was so good yeah. to see on the theater. It's so funny, and then it really pulls the switch to drama really well. Yeah, I mean, the ending of that movie is so. So crushing. That last shot is I, I've yeah, I love that last the, shot. The the last shot of Queen Christina is famous, and I don't want to give anything away about the context of anything, but it's pretty much just a shot that pulls into a close-up of her face. And it's a, a famous thing that they they talk about in like film schools and stuff a lot because the only direction for it Mamulia gave her was do nothing. And she would um It's my favorite direction. Yeah, she would <laughs> she would sort of make these expressions because it's a very emotional part. And Mamulia would just be like, do less, do less, yeah, do nothing. And then finally she just did a take where she did nothing and it's the one they printed and it's um, all the contemporary reviews, you know, Variety and everything like went nuts for the final shot because you just naturally read so much into her expression. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the whole Kuleshov effect thing. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it blows people's minds when they realize that you can do that with editing. Yeah. You know, when, they, when you realize that you can take the same shot and by what you put before it, People can look at that next shot in completely different ways and read it completely differently. Yeah. So if anybody wants to explore that more, just look at the wiki for the Kuleshov effect. You probably should spell that. Yeah, it's a K-U-L-E-S-H-O-V, I think it is. I think it's an O, not an E. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> this whatever ain't no it is. spelling B. Link no. it on the page. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put a link for that. But a, a good pair for Queen Christina is, have you seen Ecstasy, the Hedy Lamar one? I have not, but I, you know, I've heard a lot about it. Very uh, important movie for movies. It's the first sex scene in a non-pornographic film, and it's... Uh, it's a foreign it, film. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Ecstasy is a, uh, a Czech movie from the year. Hedy Lamar gets credited a lot for being the first woman to be full frontal nude in a movie in it. She's probably not, but she's definitely the first um, woman to have an orgasm in a non-pornographic movie. Really? In it. Yeah. yeah. It's a really powerful little movie. She... Uh, a simulated orgasm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the story was they had a, a PA poking her with a pin <laughs> in her legs. That's how they did it. That's what gets her off? Yeah. But it, it's about a woman who's like in a loveless marriage and, and uh, she lives in the country 
and there's a stable boy or whatever, you know, who she ends up falling in love with. And it's about that triangle. Hopefully not, a, not an actual boy. No, I guess a stable man, you know, yeah. just a farmhand, <laughs> a, a farmhand type stable of guy. Dude. Got it. Yeah, yeah. A stable dude. But <laughs> a uh, Lamar was really interesting because she, uh, she was a, a certified genius. Oh, yeah. She uh, invented the technology that they built the cell phone off of. Jesus. Yeah. She, uh, yeah. She was probably the single greatest mind to ever pass through Hollywood. And she was also like probably the most beautiful woman in the world at the time. Yeah, isn't that the name of her biography? Is like Hedy Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world? Yeah, and then there's another called Ecstasy in Me, which is a good one. <laughs> but uh, she ended up dying like in poverty. She was in the 60s shoplifting from drugstores in oh, Florida. Because she just, her career bottomed out when uh, this era ended and there was like no room for a woman like that anymore, you know? The early 30s were, I think, a great time for um, strong women in the arts. Yeah. And then when Breen took over that piece of shit, it all kind of <laughs> fell apart. Yeah. Well, a lot of it's that the the way they try to, the censors, it's a very Catholic perception mm-hmm. that Breen has. So a lot of times, you know, if a woman's bad, she must be punished. So what's a woman, how can a woman be bad is basically doing anything against a husband. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a very, it's a very different time. But in 33, you're getting great stuff like Midnight Mary uh, story of Temple Drake, which is just nuts, oh, just insane movie. It's a nuts movie, like, uh, and that's one of the ones that brought on the production code. Is it's it's an adaptation of a very infamous Faulkner novel. Yeah, Sanctuary, and the the movie is nowhere near as graphic as the novel, but it implies so much. Yeah. Like they do, they get as close as they possibly can. Like there's a scene where she's in the corn cobs, and Trigger drops down. He just glares and walks past the camera so you know what happens and then yeah hmm. it's so elliptical is that the right word yeah okay i just want to make sure it wasn't implying that there's exercise <laughs> going on they're on ellipticals and no uh it's so elliptical like what it can and can't say but it's still so suggestive and so moody like it's very southern yeah graphic. well they yeah. they light it the way uh you know they were lighting frankenstein mm-hmm. i mean it's all set in these barns and everything but it it, it looks i guess it was sort of on the cusp of southern gothic which wasn't really a thing yet but it's mm. There's so much horror movie in the in the look of it. Oh yeah, like the when she goes to the ho- the house at the beginning of the movie when she gets stranded and it's just yeah, she yeah, looks it's essentially in it. a haunted house story when you think about it. Their car breaks down and they wind up. Yeah, that's the first the only, act. Yeah, yeah, the only thing is instead of killers, it's bootleggers. Yeah, and they're just stuck with these bootleggers who. But they're nasty, horrible yeah. people, and they all take their turns trying to rape her until one of them finally does. Yeah, and then the whole thing after that, which is even more nuts, you know. Yeah, yeah, the trial and everything. Yeah, yeah. but uh, the the. The novel went even further. I mean, they, the movie really sort of soft pedals the beating that her friend Gowan takes. Mm. Well, not her friend, but, you know, her traveling companion. Because mm-hmm. in the book, he's like laid up and he's, his face is all messed up and it's this really horrible mess. Mm. The movie doesn't go into that at all. It, it sort of elides it. But the, uh, the, it's told as tastefully as possible, but that is a story that flat out, there would be no possible way to deliver that story within the code years yeah because what happens is she doesn't she's a flirt she's a tea she goes around with men and then the, the the third act of the movie she becomes a prostitute uh because she likes it and then uh she eventually she has to go to trial to prove a guy's innocent of killing someone else and she doesn't apologize for what she does she doesn't regret it she just says i came from this great line of other drakes you know i'm so sorry mm. it's interesting like she does not really like be held accountable for what she does. Right. Which is a big well, thing. Well, she's also, I mean, sort of shanghaied into prostitution. There's... Which is another thing that... Mm. And maybe it's bigger in the book than in the movie. But yeah. in the book, essentially, she um, 
gets dragged into it. Yeah, and Trigger then, sort of hauls her off and throws her into a... There's, I don't know, I always got the feeling more from the movie that she's more, like, given an option to leave and she doesn't take it. Yeah, it's it becomes very Stockholm-y. And, I yeah. mean, that's the amazing thing about the movie. There's This is a 70-whatever-year movie, and it's still, you can sort of try to take apart, you know, what was she really right so much of his elliptical like yeah. you can't like temple drake doesn't say a whole lot after a certain point yeah a movie. lot of, is just sort of tacit and there's a lot of different ways to read it yeah and they try and, they try to like to try to avoid problems with the censors they dress things up in different ways yeah but yeah. that that ambiguity is another thing that was gone from cinemas basically as soon as the production code started yeah another one that you i don't think you could have done even the year after maybe two years after was um have you seen pilgrimage no, I didn't get a chance. Uh, John Ford made two movies in 33. Uh, one of them is Dr. Bull, and it's a really sweet Southern comedy with Will Rogers yeah. that, uh, you know, it's it's really good. People love it. I love it. But there's not a lot to say about it. Pilgrimage is real interesting. Pilgrimage is the <laughs> other one he made, and it's about, uh, it, it's based on a true uh, thing that would happen. It's about this woman who, she's a farmer. She lives sort of rural, uh, doesn't have anybody. And she has a son and he goes and he fights in France in the Second World War and he dies. And then years later, they do what were called the Gold Star Cruises, where the mothers and the family of the people who uh, who got killed were uh, taken to France to see where their kids died. Mm. So it's just about this woman trying to get over the war her first time, like out of even like her town, mm. just wandering through France. And it's really powerful. It's it's uh, there's this very moody foggy kind of lighting to it and it's 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 the end of that sort of early ford where he was still trying to be fw murnau a little bit mm. and also the beginning of the you know john ford who loved everybody's mothers <laughs> version of ford but it's the uh the darkness of it and the the rabid rejection of war is something that as soon as the code took place that would have been unpatriotic and you would have been able to get that movie off the ground. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because you can pretty much count on one hand all the like anti-war movies that come out like right around World War II is about to kick up because they're really like hard on trying to avoid that stuff. Yeah. But before that, the end of the the silent era, the beginning of the sound era, before before it really started to pick up, there's a ton of them. Oh, yeah. Anti-war movies are huge. There's so much... There's just this general feeling that the war was a huge sham put on by the yeah. people. And you get that in like All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, you get that in um, Heroes for Sale, which is another great 1933 film. Yeah, you were telling me about this. Yeah, one. so... What's that one? Uh, Heroes for Sale is Richard Barthelmus, who I love. He's like this little short, stocky guy. He became famous for... Uh, what's the one where he plays the Chinese guys? Is that Intolerance? Uh, Broken in, Blossom. Broken Blossom. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, anyway, he became famous for that. But he's just a short, stocky, like football player guy. Mm. And in the story of Heroes for Sale, it's like a 70 minute movie. It goes through his entire life from World War One up until the beginning of or the Great Depression until 1933. And it starts with him getting injured in the trenches. Trenches. He's a hero. He goes and raids the other trenches, comes back, gets shot because he's saving his coward friend. And he gets addicted to morphine because, you know, you need that to get over the pain. So he goes back. He loses his job back in the real world because he's addicted to morphine. And so it goes as he becomes a bum and then he gets a job. Finally, someone helps him out and he cleans up. And then he finally uh, meets the woman of his dreams and marries her. But then she gets killed during a labor riot because those are happening. And then he gives up all his money and donates it to a charity. And all this, this whole life is put through the test. Like you can read the entire 13 years there. And then it ends with uh, Richard Barthelmus as a homeless guy. is one of the forgotten men wandering from town to town looking for work. 
And he runs into the guy who he saved from the trenches at the beginning of the movie, this guy who had been rich and powerful and now is nothing. And they're, they're both kind of commiserating over what's happened, you know, the depression and everything else. Mm. And there's these great lines. I know I'm not saying I'm right, but um, the, the, the rich guy turns to him and says, this is the end of America. And Richard Barber says, this isn't the end of America. This is the end of us, but this isn't the end of America. Mm. And it's just so dark, but so hopeful. At this. Wow. Like they're really trying to kind of toe the line, but it's a gorgeous, that's William Wellman. He had a killer year in 33. Wellman was just an amazing filmmaker. Oh yeah. That's the cool thing about the 30s that you don't get once things sort of gel and set in the in the code years and, and everybody sort of is on the same page. In the 30s, there's a lot of really political films because it was a very volatile time politically, mm. but they don't all agree with each other. No. Mm. Which is really interesting because in the 40s, you get, you know, every movie in the 40s and late 30s essentially has the same political philosophy as Casablanca. Mm. You know, we don't want to be there, but we're going to do the best job we can. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, I mean, tremendous movies from that era. But this branch of the early 30s, you get movies that are in conflict with each other politically. Right. I know what you're leading to. Yeah. Gabriel over the White House. <laughs> Such a great film. <laughs> that is the most, one of the most batshit movies. Absolute. An act of mad. The only movie I can think <laughs> to pair it with uh-huh. is Starship Troopers. I think it'd make really? a great double feature with Starship Troopers. But whereas Starship Troopers is sort of a, a satire about how fascism will come to you in the form of like 90210. <laughs> Gabriel over the White House is like a celebration of that. Yeah, because Mussolini was huge at this time in America. Like they put out a documentary called Mussolini Talks and everybody was yeah. just like, they're so impressed because he fixed the depression and did a lot of other bad things, but it's Mussolini, you know. And FD, um, the FDR, who I love as much as anybody. I mean, FDR was elected on the platform of B. Caesar. Yeah. You know, because the the system had fallen and the executive branch was garbage up till this point. Yeah. So FDR was was elected on the platform of we need a strong leader who's going to disregard a bickering Congress and just do you know, things. Yeah. Get things done. And what's what happened in Gabriel, the White House, is that this this dopey guy gets elected president. He's just towing the party line. You know, there's still the depression on. Everybody's freaking out. And then um, Angel Gabriel comes and takes this him was, over. This was filmed before FDR, right? This was, I think this was actually filmed as a response. Oh, really? Because people, it was, it was the right wingers. They didn't like FDR's election. So this was kind of, I think, it's been a long time since I wrote about it. But it's a very interesting period. Because isn't it like, this isn't, it's an MGM movie, but it was like produced and written by Hearst or something, right? Yeah. And he just went out and did his own thing and then brought it back to them. And they're just like, oh my God, what the hell is this? And they had to release <laughs> it because it was contractual. I, I interrupted you with that uh, FDR bit because I felt like it was sort of germane. But no, 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 no. Finish. So uh, he gets elected. Yeah. So he's this just dope. It's Walter Houston, very dopey, gets elected, uh, going to toe the party line. They show Who's him. Just- al- who always plays Lincoln, by the way, <laughs> which I feel like is a very important thing about the movie. The guy mm. playing this character is best known for playing Lincoln. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so he gets elected, and then he gets into a car crash. He sees two reckless, and he crashes into a tree. And when he comes to, he's been uh, taken over by the angel Gabriel. Like, literally, God's taken him over. <laughs> so, like, he dissolves Congress. He declares open warfare on bootleggers. Like, he invites, I think it's J. Carroll Nash. One of those those early 30s actors with the yeah. pointy nose and beady eyes. He invites him to the White House, and the guy, like, snickers at a bust of Lincoln, which is great. And so they like open warfare. So there's actually tanks running through the streets of Chicago. Oh my God. Just blowing up gangster strongholds. (laughs) And then they execute them on the, on a, on Ellis Island, like right under the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Like you can see Liberty (laughs) Island in the background. Well, the reason he goes so far is because the president's mistress, who's clearly his mistress, 
gets gunned down because the gangsters do a drive-by on the White House. Yeah. <laughs> like, so she falls down on the presidential, falls down on the presidential seal, like blood everywhere. Oh it's, my God. Yeah, the nuts. only thing I can think to compare it to is Starship Troopers or like the 80s action movies. <laughs> right. Like it really has that vibe of like Death Wish 3. Yeah, but the end just is... just go balls out. It reminds me of like uh, Above the Law, the Seagal one, where he's, isn't he like beating the shit out of like the senator? Yeah. At like the end of it and everybody's yeah, or just like, like the last right, act whatever. of Black Dynamite where he's fighting Nixon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, like the very end of Gabriel over the White House is he gathers all of the world leaders from all over the world who owe, owe the U.S. so much money for the war and don't have it. And he pulls out this brand new battleship and then has it like sends two American planes over and sinks it. He says, I'm crazy enough to blow up my own ships. If you guys start rearming, I'll do this to you. So it shows every le leader in the world signing a peace treaty. Like oh, going my into God. It. it is the most crazy right wing fantasy like you, you know, you have to see it. It is the craziest oh, I, I movie. I can't wait. The one of the craziest movies I've ever seen in my life, wow. and yeah. it's like very. I mean, in, in technical terms, it's like not hard to watch. It's right. very well put together. It's mm -hmm. good actors. It's very it's, competent. It moves. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that's the most amazing thing about it. It's yeah. just like the progression from a normal '30s movie into the craziest, <laughs> in the gutter madness. Yeah, you could imagine. Wow. So that's a that's a pretty good one to that's end. That's the spirit uh, of the pre-code. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty good one to end this section on. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more 33. And now Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. So I just watched um, Theory of Obscurity, which is the documentary about The Residents, that really famous but identity not known band with the eyeballs on their heads. I've been a fan of them since high school, but I kind of stopped listening to their music after a while because it's kind of grating, even though it's really influential. The uh, The documentary is extremely comprehensive. It's got a lot of interviews with a lot of people. It's got a lot of footage of a lot of shows. It really shows you what kind of impact the residents had on pop culture, which is something that I think a lot of people kind of, there's, there's almost like a few tiers of like residents fan generations. You've got people like me and my friends who got into them in high school and looked them up on YouTube and shit and have seen all their videos or whatever. And then you've got people from like the seventies because they've been around that long who um, had to like go to a bunch of record stores and like dig up magazines and shit to find out about them and piece together their whole discography, which is quite a task. And then you have, now you're going to have the new generation <laughs> who just has it handed to them as here's the residents, here's what they did. Here's, the impact they made and here's the people who were influenced by them and and uh, here's all their music and everything and that's just so weird but kind of cool because it's like historically it's very valuable this movie because it really shows you how important they were and how important they still are uh, because these guys are still alive nobody knows like what their names are and stuff but they're people and it's really cool thanks chloe and now back to the show and we are back. We're going to actually loop back to where we started a little bit because we didn't get a chance to talk about Son of Kong. And that's a very interesting, weird little movie that John D'Amico actually hipped me to. It wasn't something I would assume, you know, would be that great, but it does have these really great qualities to it. It's a very strange movie and it has a very different tone. There's stuff there that's worth exploring. What's cool about Son of Kong is um, the whole premise for sequels in uh you know the sequel era is do the first movie but a little bigger and son of kong just does the first movie but a little smaller 
Right. <laughs> and it's literally, it's almost the same thing. They just go back to Skull Island and, you know, same sort of group of people, same dynamic, but with a smaller ape. Right. Mm. And then there's um, when they did uh, uh, Mighty Joe Young in 42 or whatever, same thing again. Even Same smaller. sort of group of people, just an even smaller ape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the tone of Son of Kong, it's a, uh, it's a little like freewheeling. It's just kind of like it's it's like just it's people, slapdash. It's people walking a lot yeah. of it. Like it's clearly it, it was not. They didn't get Faulkner for the script. You know, no. it was it's <laughs> it uh, it really prosaic. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, the old like LucasArts sort of graphic adventure text adventure games that I played when I was a kid. Where like you know you you walk into a set and then you do what you're supposed to do and then you walk into like the next little area yeah. and you do that too it has that pace once they're on skull island where like they'll they'll encounter something and they have to sort of figure it out and then just move along yeah it's like a puzzle movie almost yeah at, at its whereas best, kong is like a kidnap story yeah mm. at its best that's that's the vibe that i really like the most from that movie and there's a you always point out to me there's like a remorse towards the beginning of it yeah which is sort of the whole King Kong thing in general, the, the early thirties in general, I think their horror stuff was very good at being kind of sad. Mm-hmm. So there was uh in 32, I was so desperate to talk about it, but it turns out it was at 32. There is Island of Lost Souls, which is, you know, the Dr. Moreau story. And like, even the title change for that one is sort of a great, just overview of what horror and sci-fi type stuff was in the thirties about lost souls. And it's about, it was really just about these sort of outsiders and these people who did bad things, but didn't want to be bad people. Right. It distills it. It's almost like a thesis. Yeah. The one great exception to that is the the really gleefully evil Murders in the Zoo. That's a great fucking title. Murders yeah. in the Zoo is a great fucking movie. <laughs> I know you're a big Murders in the Zoo guy. Oh, yeah. That's nuts. I'm it's imagining a lion escapes and murders everybody, oh, but that, that's probably close. far off. It's Lion Atwell, so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Lion Atwell's like the sneering little... He's a, he's either the villain or the guy you think is the villain, like most pre-code movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically a dude who hates a bunch of people, so he kills them with different animals. Yeah. That sounds really fantastic. When you really boil it down. Yeah. I'm sold. The animal slasher movie. Yeah, it's an animal slasher movie. So there's, you know, <laughs> there's the guy who gets thrown into a pit of crocodiles, and there's the... Uh, well, the opening scene is probably so my brutal. favorite part. Yeah, he ties up this man and stitches his mouth shut and leaves him there to die in the jungle. Jesus. It's brutal. Brutal for it's a like a millennium. Up, you, yeah. Isn't that the first out. episode of yeah, Millennium? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one the one whose mouth is tied up and they're buried in a hole. It's yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. That you just see some stuff going on in the distance in the jungle, and then a guy just runs towards the camera and stops and tries to scream, but he can't because his mouth is sewn up. And then the titles come up, and that's Jesus. how the movie begins. Yeah. I, I really want to see that one. <laughs> it's uh, Murders in the Zoo is a good time. Mm-hmm. It's as good a time as you're gonna have. <laughs> but speaking of the zoo. Talk about the uh, Roland V. Lee movies of the year, which was uh, I Am Suzanne and Zoo in Budapest. Yeah, we're split on Zoo in Budapest. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of this movie. I think I, I think that's one of those movies I need to see in like a clearer, nicer looking version because the one I got is just garbage third generation. That's, so a, shame with that. a, it's that's just, a shame with a lot of these. It's that, a, yeah. I know it's a very atmospheric movie and I can watch it and think, oh, I know this is pretty, but it's not right, pretty right now. Because yeah. it's so fog fog draped and the fog draped ones really don't do well in, in 240p or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Especially in bad digital quality. Mm-hmm. Like in bad analog quality, they were okay. Right. But digitally, it just sort of boxes up. But Zoo in Budapest is just about two people who run away and live in a zoo. 
like the the mood of it feels like the little prince to me where it's almost oh, like a fairy great. tale yeah it's this really just beautiful little strange almost fairy tale but they're adults i yeah. like that yeah yeah they find a kid too and it kind of becomes a weird yeah little it's like a little family that they just start in a zoo in budapest yeah, yeah. And I Am Suzanne, you're really into. I love I Am Suzanne. Yeah, That's I, like, I was less taken with that one, to be honest. I really wish there was nicer quality out there, but it's a story of a dancer who falls in love with a guy who does puppetry, and the guy who does puppetry falls in love with the puppet of the dancer, and so the woman has to constantly try to... like. At one point, she shoots the puppet with a gun <laughs> and just loses it, and uh, there's this whole huge dream sequence at the end where all the characters come on on strings and start mocking her, and there's a witch doll that says, you're going to have a puppet baby! <laughs> and it's it is so like perfect weird psychological horror. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I I've always loved the puppet stuff. I I love that movie Magic, the uh, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, one. that's a good one. Yeah, that's yeah. a really fun one. Puppets are are good to mine for uh, psychological stuff. Yeah, and that that it has that '30s sort of like expressionist horror thing. Mm. Yeah, you know, definitely. Lee was good at that. Like, yeah, really building an atmosphere with everything. Yeah, and it was really just the heyday of gothic expressionism you could even see it in a lot of the cartoons at the time like we were talking about. yeah we were uh you know going into this i was thinking like the movies that i'd seen from 33 and i was like yeah it's not that much but then i was looking at like the cartoons that came out in 33 i've seen a lot of that i mean i was raised on a lot of old cartoons one from 33 that's just a must watch like it's just something you have to see is mickey mouse the mad doctor and you might have seen it or you might have seen imagery from it. You'd probably remember it because it was one of the levels in one of the Genesis. Exactly. Yeah. When, when that came out for Super Nintendo and Genesis, you know, I think maybe that was like level two or something was the yeah. Mad Doctor's Very layer. hard to get through that level. Mm. Yeah. That was a Fly, hard fucking game. Yeah. Flying skulls and everything. And that's important to note, you know, the video game adaptation of it, because there are a lot of shots in that cartoon that you see in video games from the last like 20 years. Yeah, you were saying that you feel like the the short is just a video game. Yeah. yeah. And it's there's a shot that's like a third person shot where it's Mickey walking forward, you know, away from, you know, the screen and turning corners and it's it's exactly like, you know, Wolfenstein or actually it's more like, you know, like any third person shooter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's in this hallway where the tops and the bottom yeah, to the, the hall, side are. The hall really is very present. Wolfenstein, but it's like yeah. it's a direct third person shot. I mean, you've seen it in tons and tons of video games. And there are similar sort of video game logic things that happen, like Mickey Mouse crossing the bridge over the moat in the beginning and the little, you know, bridge pieces drop down as he passes yeah. past them. Yeah, I mean that's like a classic like Super Mario Brothers like two kind of thing yeah to do a podcast on really tough levels of psychogenesis games because i could talk about aladdin for a while the oh, never ending podcast is <laughs> all so hard yeah there was a certain crop of games where i could not play without level select codes yeah. like the lion king was fucking hard aladdin was pretty damn hard you needed that level select code i was just bad at Mega Man growing up but well, Mega Man, everybody was bad at Mega Man. <laughs> But back to the cartoon. I mean, that's just a gorgeous cartoon. It holds up today perfectly. You watch it now, you're in, as in awe as somebody seeing it the day it came out. I mean, there there's this great moment where he's going upstairs and the stairs are all essentially caskets and they open as he passes them and there's like skeletons inside and then they pull back the, the opening of the casket and then he falls back down the stairs. It's fucking great. 
It's a hell of a cartoon, man. Yeah, there's a lot of like with the Fleischer stuff too, like going into the horror stuff. There's a Swing You Sinners from 31 that uses some of the same things mm. where Bimbo, it's Bimbo, it's Bimbo, not Bosco. Bimbo goes into a haunted house because he was trying to steal a chicken to get chased by the police and it just, everything comes to life and there's really weird like lynching imagery. Yeah. They just, mm. it's like he goes into a graveyard, falls in, pops his head out, he's got a bone on his nose and, yeah, and it, Bimbo's initiation, which is like the really famously like still kind of scary one. <laughs> yeah. So I think like cartoons of the early 30s were really okay with just scaring the shit out of kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah look at that. And adults, yeah. too. I mean, there's some scary fucking shit there. <laughs> look at the Betty Boop stuff. And what's cool is it's all still when they were kind of like just little musicals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Mickey Mouse one, everything's just like kind of vaguely in song. Right. And the Betty Boop stuff, that was when they were doing those really creepy ones with Cab Calloway in them. Oh, yeah. The uh, Old Man in the Mountain. Yeah. That, that yeah, Cab yeah. Calloway one, that's 1933. And another one that we saw actually ahead of uh, King Kong when we saw King Kong right. at Film Betty Forum. Boop's Penthouse. Betty Boop's Penthouse, which is a great cartoon. It's about like this monster that's trying to get to Betty Boop. And, you know, it's one of those great cartoons where like, everything is moving along to the music. Like the flowers are kind of dancing to the music yeah. and swaying side to side. Yeah. And like, it's just that got that great rhythm and great visuals. And that's a hell of a cartoon. Yeah. Betty Boop's one of those characters who you immediately see the production code affecting because her dress just goes down like four inches in 1934. Right. Yeah. It's what ruined it, it. The whole idea of what people think of when they think of that character now has nothing to do with what those early shorts were like. And I think it's because of the production code. It just stopped mm -hmm. it dead. Yeah, because they were really visionary and they were really suggestive and they were kind of like sexual and there was a lot of uh, jazz all yeah, over. Yeah, they, they had. They could use black artists, which most of yeah, the other movies exactly. Couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Louis Armstrong's severed head was chasing her around yes. in one of them. <laughs> Nineteen thirty-three, also the first year of Popeye the Sailor cartoons, which was initially Popeye. yeah, Popeye's just <laughs> fucking incredible. I could watch that all day. And uh, it actually started out as a Betty Boop cartoon, but it had Popeye and Bluto and olive oil, but it was them all in a Betty Boop cartoon. It's mostly just a Popeye cartoon, but that was 1933. That was the first one. So, and it, it really looks good. You Popeye looks like Popeye. It's not like when you go back and look at some cartoons where it's like a, a crude version, like with like the Simpsons on the Tracy Ullman or whatever. No, it's just everybody looks the way they're supposed to look and it's animated very well. And Popeye just hit the ground running. I mean, all those cartoons look so fucking good. All the Popeyes. Well, it's like Betty Boop's like Cocoa Nuts or whatever, where she does the hula, which right. is just rotoscope. Yeah. But it's her doing the full hula with just the lay on, which they used as much as they could. Yeah, a lot of that, that rotoscope stuff is is fantastic. Another cool first, uh, 33, that I didn't realize until I started making the list for this episode is um, there's this movie called Deluge, which is... Um, it's about uh, a big flood comes, wipes out society, and then people sort of living in these little like makeshift towns and even some of them in caves and they're trying to rebuild the, the world. And it only survives in an Italian language print, though it was a, uh, it was a Hollywood film. It was supposed to be a, a competitor to King Kong, which it wasn't, it wasn't able to hold up, but it's a pretty good little movie. But it's, uh, it's the first movie that I'm aware of and if any of you know one earlier, please let me know. Yeah, right it's, in. It's the first movie I'm aware of where New York is leveled, mm. which is like a hallmark of cinema now. Right. It's just wiping yeah, New York out. You can't not yeah. wipe out New York now. Armageddon, The Day After, Planet of the Apes, everything. They all wipe out New York. The first time I've ever seen it was in this. And I wonder if it's because... Um, you had the Empire State Building now, mm -hmm. which you see get taken apart in it. The the destruction scenes are actually really 
really cleverly done. There's some really good miniature and there's some good, um, they'll do these effects where they'll sort of split up the, uh, the film itself. They'll, they'll tear apart a building by tearing apart the, the actual negative of the building mm. and really cool little effects like that, that you don't really see anywhere else. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it's because there's like now a very recognizable and very vertical skyline that you could start thinking about taking apart. Chipping it away. Like yeah. Yeah. Because uh, in in uh, the Lost World in twenty six or twenty five, when it was, you you saw London take apart, get taken apart, and it's because of Big Ben and the uh, the bridge and all that stuff that's just very recognizable, right? And and stands out in silhouette. New York got a silhouette, so all of a sudden you had this in King Kong that, that used it, right? So something a little lighter, you know, going away from destruction and whatnot. Nineteen thirty three, Duck Soup. <laughs> One of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah, you've been dying to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's one I saw as a kid. And it's, you know, along with like early Saturday Night Live. And, you know, I say early Saturday Night Live, but as when I was watching it as a kid, it was contemporary Saturday Night Live. Not to say that I grew up in the 70s, but I mean, my, my version of Saturday Night Live of, you know, the early 90s, that really shaped my idea of what the fuck comedy was, mm. you know. And the great thing about the Marx Brothers is, you get a primer on different styles of comedy just with those three guys and to an extent those four guys because I'm going to give Zeppo a little bit of love because people kind of hate on Zeppo, but he's actually <laughs> fucking brilliant. You know, I didn't get him for a very long time and then I read some pieces online about how, you know, Zeppo was actually poking fun at this sort of useless character in mm. film that people didn't really like or rather the Marx Brothers didn't really like in general and he was that stand-in. And he was actually like a funny guy, like behind the scenes. Yeah, and Groucho always said he was the funniest of them. Yeah. Yeah. And on screen, they just used him in this sort of ironic way that I guess goes over our heads now mm -hmm. and maybe people at the time as well. But he was he was supposed to be this just placeholder character and he just played it so well that we just associate him with that. He's a great straight man for the other people. Oh, yeah. He, he, does, he can twist it a little bit more than the other, the more bland leading men that came later. Absolutely. Yeah, especially like in Horse Feathers. He's really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, monkey business too. I think the problem is that he's like in Duck Soup, his part's pretty much cut to nothing. Well, that's true, yeah. So that's why a lot of, he's people, not in that one a lot of people just watch Duck Soup and go, oh, Zeppo's nothing. Why do yeah. I care? That's why I love uh, TCM will do like Marx Brothers marathons and mm -hmm. just play those all fucking day. And they're, they're great movies for just catching pieces of because yeah. the plots are so simple that they don't even matter almost. And you could just come upon your favorite scenes or catch scenes that you forgot about and other ones. I used to always love like the musical portions where they were just playing piano and yeah, just showing off. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Chico is fucking amazing piano player. Yeah. And you really get to see that and you really get to see those great close-ups of like his fingers just tapping keys and like mm -hmm. his little like pointer finger thing that he would do. I mean, I just, I, I love those guys a lot. I'm glad you, uh, you dig the Zeppo as well because oh, yeah. people can go either way on him, but I think he's worthwhile. I think a lot of people just saw that him not joining up again at MGM was a, was a diss on him or I think it was more of a conscious decision on his part because mm -hmm. really they cut out like all of the romantic subplot he had in Duck Soup. Right. So... Yeah. yeah. No, he's funny. And Duck Soup kind of widely regarded as their best film. You know, maybe it's not a person's favorite, but Oh, I love that movie. That's um so during the film festival, they had this like booth you can go and you you do record a little video of yourself saying why I love movies and they'd send it to you and you can share it with your social media thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it because I knew if they did, if they'd asked me, I would have said, I love movies because I watched Duck Soup when I was twelve and I learned that I should be an asshole. 
<laughs> just like not respect anything. And yeah. that's, that's why ducks, that's what's interesting about the Marx Brothers Paramounts is because they're very anarchic and they take, they make fun of like the leading men and ladies. They don't take anything seriously. Whereas when it goes to MGM, right. there's the romantic comedy couple who goes and it's pretty, you know, nice people or whatever. We got to get the couple together, says Chico. But uh, no, like duck soup is pretty much their most nihilistic one. Yeah, it's very counterculture. And, you know, people associate counterculture a lot of times in comedy with stand up and Lenny Bruce and all that. Mm-hmm. But you can find it in Marx Brothers. You can find it in early stuff that that counterculture aspect. Well, they do a lot of like political movies in the early 30s with sort of the same bent. Mm-hmm. Like, um, same writers who did Duck Soup did Diplomaniacs for a team called Wheeler and Woolsey, who are pretty much forgotten now. But if uh, Duck Soup's kind of about all the dumb stuff that's going to lead up to World War II, Diplomaniacs is more about like World War I politics and how dumb that was. So mm-hmm. it kind of completely lampoons League of Nations and makes fun of musicals, which desperately needed at this point. But uh, And then there's also stuff like uh, International House, which I haven't seen. And then, uh, oh, what's the W.C. Fields one where he's the Olympic weightlifting champion? I don't know, but the W.C. Fields' uh, fatal glass of beer was this year. Oh, yeah. Where he's the the guy in the Yukon. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've uh, talked about that on the pod. Yeah, where where the runner is, uh, he keeps saying it's not a night fit for man or beast or whatever and opens the door and just gets hit in the face with like a pie of snow every time. <laughs> I like that yeah, one. Yeah, that's, that's an absolute classic. Yeah, the other good, other big comedian of the year was Paramount got uh, Mae West out of New York and into California. And that's one of the big things that freaked out Breen because Mae West's uh, suggestions are just off the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just uh, when I'm good, I'm good. When I'm bad, I'm better. You know, stuff like that. Right. You know, even today, they're Facebook memes. Um, <laughs> so good point. Yeah, but her movies were super successful. Like She Done Him Wrong got nominated for Best Picture. I'm No Angel was the highest grossing movie. I of like the year. She Done Him Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they're just very ribald comedies and just Breen really freaked out, not so much because of the content, not because of the euphemisms, but because uh, West herself was so independent. She wrote her own stuff. She she pushed for everything. Mm-hmm. She was such an like a feminist figure that you just had to kind of squash her while they could. Do right. you feel like, I feel like this sometimes, and I don't know if it's verified or whatever, but so much of the production code came about just as a response to fear of women. Yeah. Ever get that no, sense? no, no. That's, that's pretty much textual in a lot of things. Cause there's so many like female where it's a female auto tycoon runs a country or not country, a company. And she's so powerful. Like there's all these movies about powerful, strong women in jobs, yeah. which they don't, you know, they would just disappear in the 40s. Like Kay Francis plays a doctor or she plays an aviator or she yeah. plays. There's all these professional women movies. Or even metatextually, you have Christopher Strong where Catherine Hepburn plays an aviator, but the director was Dorothy Arzner, yeah. who was one of the first um, American female directors. And she sort of like drops off the map after this era. Yeah. Yeah. You, you started to see it behind the scenes where like, it yeah. really, it was, it was a great time for women in film. It seems like. Yeah. A lot of writers in the early thirties were women like Frances Marion. Uh, she did like stuff like the big house, but then she'd also, she found Clara Bow and gave her a career and she does all these other big movies. So there's a lot of women writers, not so many women directors. And then that kind of dies off as yeah. it, things become less complicated. Thanks to the code. Christopher Strong, you uh, wrote about for the site. I think that was one of the first films you actually yeah, wrote about, I wrote for, about uh, it. smug film. Uh, in a piece I did on 10 picks from the Warner Ar- Archive. Right. Because it was Warner, I guess. It's really good. It's uh, 
Hepburn plays this woman who's uh, she's a very independent, like aviator. And uh, Colin Clive plays the guy that she's sort of having a thing with. And it's really interesting to see Clive and Hepburn together because, mm-hmm. you know, he was Dr. Frankenstein and he's this sort of um, British aristocrat type character and everything. And, and she's always this sort of like classic American leading lady type. And you you very rarely get any collision between those two worlds of film. So it's cool to see them paired up. There's some great costuming in that movie. <laughs> the moth costume. Yeah, the, yeah. The, there's a part where she uh, goes to a Halloween party or something, like just sort of a costume party, I guess. Mm-hmm. It like dresses like a giant moth with this really like sleek 30s like art deco moth. And it's just mm-hmm. really cool stuff in that movie. Yeah, it's also foreshadowing. <laughs> yes, also that. Um, but another good movie with a strong woman, which I don't think either of you have seen, is uh, Blondie Johnson. No. Which is a Warner Brothers gangster movie, but instead of Cagney, it's Joan Blondell plays the gangster. Oh, that's incredible. She goes around, she has to order hits on the man she loves, and mm. just she plays all these cons. It's great. It's a lot of fun. I love Joan Blondell. Oh, I think God. she's so good. She's so she's has wonderful career. Like Tree Grows in Brooklyn. But yeah. All right. So I think uh, you know, as we're winding down, now would be a good time to do a little bit of a lightning round. Cause I know you guys, I'm looking over there and you got <laughs> big old sheets full of these nineteen thirty-three movies that we just won't be able to get to. Yeah. So I would say I don't want to set a clock. I don't really have a clock I could set, but we'll just do like uh, you know, just a little bit of lightning round. You wanna go first, John? Maybe maybe do five in a row. Uh have either of you seen Law of Vengeance? No. Also I, I definitely last. haven't. To the last man, yeah. It's uh, Henry Hathaway, 1933 Western with Buster Crab. It's kind of a Hatfield and McCoy type of story. And uh, this was really the heyday of the era when Westerns were just kids' movies. Mm. You know, this was the year that Lone Ranger premiered on radio. It's a heyday of Tom Mix. It was, you know, John Wayne was still sort of in the gutter and um, uh, Ford hadn't directed a Western since the silent era. But this is just out of nowhere, this really mature, really beautifully shot, really powerful little um revenge movie in the western genre and it's just it's it's public domain now i think i don't know why uh but it maybe it's abandoned where almost but mm. you can find it on youtube really great little movie to the last man aka law of vengeance it's my number one pick yeah for the for the deep cuts all right uh and then i would also say zero day con wheat is one that i feel genuinely bad we didn't even get to go over because it's such a seminal movie it, it was uh Jean Vigo's a big feature film about some kids in a boarding school. It's uh, Criterion has it. You know, everybody has it. Everybody saw it in film school. But it it was the movie that laid the groundwork for what 20 years later would become the French New Wave. But it's the prime example of what at this time was called French poetic realism, which I liked much more Mm. than the New Wave stuff. Uh, Great little movie, that one. Yeah, and then my next pick would be Secrets, uh, which neither of you have seen, right? Nope. That's a uh, Borzaghi one. Borzaghi who did Man's Castle, which we went over a little bit. It's a, it's a Western uh, with Leslie Howard and Mary Pickford about these two Easterners who move out West and try to make a life there. It's Parts of it are very funny, and then it gets very dramatic as it goes. And there's this part where there's a like a 10-minute shootout in a house at night without power, and there's a baby in the house. Mm. And it's like one of the most intense scenes I've seen in any movie from the era. Damn. It's the rest of it's really fun too, but it's even if it wasn't, it would be worth powering through secrets just to get to that one, uh, that one fight. Right. And then also uh, another real weird deep cut is uh, Damaged Lives. How do you know that? No, I wouldn't expect. The only reason I know about it is because of the director. It's an Omer movie. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, as a lot of you know, I went on a tear trying to watch every Edgar Omer movie I could find. Which was suicidal. <laughs> it's just, they're so hard to get an accurate figure on, you know, which ones were even him. Right. And how many there are and where they are. But this was an interesting one because it's really a, a public safety VD movie. Mm. It's about an hour long. But he does it in this way where he sort of folds it into the mold of like early 30s, you know, like man against the world sort of forgotten man movies. And it's kind of interesting because you think there's no way anybody could make a good movie out of this. But if anybody was the champion of uh, sort of low genres and distributable people, it was Ulmer. So it's this really sensitive movie just about these people whose lives are destroyed. Uh, that one's really worth checking out. And one more. One more? Oof. All right. Uh, my last pick is probably going to be Mystery of the Wax Museum. Good one. Yeah, that's uh, two-strip Technicolor. Mm-hmm. So I actually should have brought that up earlier when we were talking about that. It's Michael Curtiz who went on to direct Casablanca. And it was remade a couple times, most recently with Paris Hilton as House of Wax. Right. Yeah. And it's the the first version of that crazy wax museum owner story. But it's really good. The two-strip Technicolor really helps because it's such a creepy-looking image Mm. with this sort of like desaturated but also kind of very red look to it. There's only certain colors it could make. Like you couldn't do yellow. You couldn't really do blue. So you have a movie that has this weird off-kilter quality. So like when you see the moon up at night, it's got green clouds surrounding it. Yeah, it's almost like every color is either red or green. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, it it really becomes pretty atmospheric with that that look to it. All right, good picks. Because those are my five. Yeah. All right, how about you, man? You said 10, right? (laughs) I believe I said five. All right, I'm going to try and combine a few then. Um, Lady Killer and Picture Snatcher, two different James Cagney movies. They Uh came out in 33. Uh, Lady Killer is actually just a pretty much an out-and-out uh, satire of the public enemy. Like, it's, really? him, it's him and May Clark teamed up again, and he's a gangster who's on the run, and he ends up in Hollywood. He becomes a movie star. And so it's just poking fun at movies of the time. And it's the same director. Uh, I think it's Wellman. Uh, it's either Wellman or Del Ruth. Anyway, um, so it's just poking fun of it. So you see James Cagney, like, dressed up as a little Lord Fauntleroy because they keep putting <laughs> him all these ridiculous things. Mm. And it's just him trying to navigate. That's funny. Um, Picture Snatchers, him playing a journalist, like completely a moral journalist. He goes and uh, there's a famous case that happened in the late 20s. It's referenced a lot where a woman is executed by like by being electrocuted. And so one journalist from one of the tabloids like snuck in a camera attached to his ankle and took a picture of it. Oh, it was man. on the cover. It was this huge scandal. So a lot of movies reference it. And this one has James Cagney do that. It's about how he kind of learns not to be a complete scumbucket. It's also got Alice White as the woman who seduces him. And oh my God, um, she's gorgeous. <laughs> Let's see. I definitely would have to touch on Wild Boys of the Road, which is kind oh, of a... Oh yeah, that's yeah, a fun one. It's kind of a companion piece to Heroes for Sale because they're both well-men. They're both about the depression. And it's just this these two kids who kind of brought up in like lower middle class and suddenly their parents are laid off because of the depression. So they go, they decide to save their parents from the burden. They go on the rails. They travel around the country trying to find work. And it gets dark fast, as you can imagine, about a mm. bunch of uh, bunch of runaways who, you know, the rail lines come and just beat the shit out of them, throw them around. Oh man! Uh, one of the, one of the one of the other runaway kids turns out to be a girl, and she gets beaten and raped, and the kids revolt and start kill like killing people. Jesus! Um, one kid loses his leg on the railroad tracks, and so all this in like seventy five minutes too. Oh, yeah, every movie we're that talking kinda, about. Yeah, yeah, that kind of reminds me of that movie Sin Nombre, the Kari Fukunaga movie. Did you ever see that? That's a great film about a. Uh, bunch of kids riding essentially a train 
trying to get away from something. No, I don't think I've seen that. One. You might. I mean, that's kind of up that alley. So you should yeah. check that one out. That's a really good one from a couple of years back. I okay. didn't mean to throw you off your train of thought. <laughs> ah, oh. Train of, train of it. thought. Uh oh. But uh, please continue. Okay. Um, <laughs> I will do quick two Claudette Colbert movies real quick because she was really cute this time. She did Three Cornered Moon, which is a lot of people consider like one of the first screwball comedies. It's about this family of idiots who lose all their money and have to kind of adjust. And it's this really weird thing where the entire first half of the movie, you're just laughing at how much you know the fall is about to happen. They're, all just, they're like, let's all take taxis to this thing separately. They all nice. go to the same place via separate taxis. And then by the end, they're like so desperate for $5. And it somehow works because you become really attached to the family. And then uh, the other one, I cover the waterfronts fascinating because... Oh God, Ben Lyons plays a reporter who's trying Wait, to... Wait, I've seen that one. Yeah, it's public domain, so it's really easy to find. And Claudette Colbert is the daughter of the ship's captain. The guy's smuggling in Chinese immigrants because... Yeah, yeah, that was good. It is good, right? Because hmm. uh, this is during the Chinese Exclusion Act. Oh, I where, saw that years ago. Yeah, yeah I forgot about Chinese it. Chinese people weren't allowed in the country. Like, you, if you left, you couldn't get back in. Jesus. So the ship captain would have to bring people in. The movie opens with the captain. He throws a couple of them overboard to like attaches anchors to the Chinese people he's bringing because he sees the cops coming. Oh my god! And when he realizes the cops are going to notice, is he has to drown them. He has no choice, or else he'll get arrested. So he kills these people, mm. and that's that's how the movie starts. And it becomes this really dark thing. And then Fucking Ben Lyons falls in love with Claudette Colbert, who he meets because he sees her skinny dipping. Um, <laughs> that happens to Claudette Colbert. Claudette Colbert gets a, naked a lot at this period, which is great. <laughs> um, like in a. Four Frightened People, which is a DeMille movie. She's like bathing under a waterfall and Herbert Marshall and uh, William Gargan just see her there and they, they're they just like, aww. And then they <laughs> Herbert Marshall flips up and has to run up and grab her. like, I'm just protecting you. And now he's not. Um, okay. I also wanted to talk about Professional Sweetheart, which is a lot of fun. That's Ginger Rogers at her, at her like least Ginger Rogeriest. She plays a radio personality who's like the squeaky clean soap image girl. And movies at this time were really like laying it hard on radio because they're taking all their listeners and viewers because they're, you know, one song, you know, whatever. Um, so she plays this squeaky image girl. But in reality, she like loves going to Harlem. She just wants to be a jazz baby. Hmm. Uh, she spends most of the movie in her underwear. All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It ends with her husband. She marries a hick from the boonies and her husband like punches her in the face and she fakes being knocked out just to get more sympathy. And then she <laughs> takes off her clothes and runs around just to be a dick to him. Uh, it's nuts. Uh, it's a comedy. And then last one, I'll oh, double harness or strangers return. Right. Do both. All right, double That's harness. All right. Double harness is great. It's Anne Harding. Oh, Anne Harding's also in uh, When Ladies Meet, which is awesome. That's a that's a Broadway show that's based on a play by a woman about these. Sorry, I'm doing three movies for my last one. That's <laughs> all right. Up, You're man. the special Live guest, dude. Will, uh, when okay, I'll do. Wait, and then I want to ask you about one more. When this okay, is no, no. <laughs> when ladies meet is great. It was really hard to find. It's Robert Montgomery, Myrna Loy, Anne Harding, and Frank Morgan again. I love Myrna Loy. Oh God, Myrna Loy is so good. In mm. this. So Myrna Loy's uh, seduce, not seducing. She's in love with Frank Morgan. Frank Morgan's married to Anne Harding, and then Robert Montgomery's in love with Myrna Loy. So he's like, you know, you can't steal this man. And Myrna Loy's like, no, no, no. We live in a modern age. Women don't mind about that anymore. <laughs> if she knows that I love him, she'll be fine. And then so what happens is uh, Robert Montgomery brings Anne Harding with him to a country getaway with Myrna Loy. So Myrna Loy and Anne Harding meet and become friends. And then Myrna Loy is writing a book where what's happening in your life is what's going to happen in what she assumes is going to happen in real life where she's going to tell Anne Harding, even though she doesn't know it's Anne Harding, about right. the affair. And Anne Harding's going to say, okay, whatever. So they get into a debate about what's about to happen in the movie, <laughs> like a very intense and intellectual debate. It's great. And Robert Montgomery fucking kills it. I mean, he does it always, but he's great in that. 
So that's when ladies meet. And then I also had Anne Harding, who's in Double Harness, where she plays a woman who decides that marriage is a business. So what she's going to do is she's going to seduce William Powell and essentially like force him into marrying her. Because, you know, this is back in the day where if you see a woman come out of a hotel room, you know, they have to either be married or else it's going to be the biggest scandal in the world. Right. And so she seduces him, gets him into marriage and realizes that she actually loves him. So she has to spend the second half of the movie getting him to fall back in love with her. That's such a great premise. I love that as a plot. Yeah. Oh, and Harding is so good. It reminds me of like the Lady Eve or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And William Powell's good in it too. Like he... All right. Uh, Then last one is Stranger's Return, which is Miriam Hopkins, who was in Temple Drake. And you have to... Oh, my girl. Early 30s. Yeah. She kills it. Uh, Miriam Hopkins. She's Temple Drake, right? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. She's She's in Design for Living too, which I don't think we even got to. Oh, we didn't even get to get to that one. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll do it. Don't yeah, worry. she's in uh, Trouble in Paradise as well, which is the best. Yeah, but that's thirty-two. Anyway, uh, Stranger that is the best. Yeah, yeah. Strangers Return is a King Vidor movie where she's a granddaughter of a cantankerous old farmer who's played by Lionel Barrymore, who's never found a scene that he can't chew on. <laughs> and uh, he, she comes back and she sort of realizes that she's in love with the land, in love with it. And she falls in love with the neighboring neighbors, played by Francois Franchot Tone. I can never figure out how to pronounce his name. <laughs> but uh, she falls in love with him. And it's just this very earthy, very real movie, kind of about small town prejudice. But then there's so much that Hopkins puts into it that it just she sells it. Like there's a scene where she's a wonderful actress. Oh God. So there's a scene where her and Barrymore are just staring at this line of trees and they're supposed to be telling, like talking about how much they love the land. You just see her back and you can see it. It's just amazing. Mm. Like, and then, uh, she kisses tone like in this, this, you know, those weeping willow trees. Right. She's she's like laying in a hammock and tone just runs in. He's like, I love you so much. And he kisses her, even though he's married. And it's just look in her eyes as she's trying to figure all this out. Oh God, it's great. Oh, okay. What was the movie you wanted to ask about? Well, I cover the waterfront reminded me of another one that we really should have talked about, but didn't. What do you think of the bitter tea of general yen? That was, Oh fuck. That's a great movie. That's like yeah. one of my favorites. Like, and that's another one where it's sort of about, um, the China, like racism. Yeah. It's about uh, uh, Asian racism, which was such a thing at the time. It started with broken blossoms, which yeah. with 22 or whatever we touched on. And it sort of rose to a fever pitch until, uh, the second world war. Mm-hmm. And then you never saw a movie about that subject again for mm-hmm. another you yeah, know, no, half a century. General Yen is such a brilliant film in the way it kind of addresses American, like the way Americans insinuate yeah. themselves into other countries. And the uh, Walter Connolly character in that is so awesome. Yeah. He's so nasty, but so nice. And like when Barbara Stanwyck meets him, is like, you can get me out of this. And she realizes he's there for the money and just to. And then the way Stanwyck is probably my pick for the entire era of just like the best actress. It's either her or Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, Zidi Ohan creeps up there for me, but she really didn't get a lot of movies. She didn't get as much, but what's yeah. the uh, What's the premise of this one, by the way? Oh, General Yen. So Barbara Stanwyck is a woman whose husband is a missionary in China, and she's going to come after three years, and they're going to get married. And it's this great opening scene where it's at a party, and all the Chinese people are silent in the dark. And Capra directed this. <laughs> mm. And Capra in the early 30s is fucking great. Yeah. Um. So all these, so it's very like... Capra insi- was always great. Well, yeah. But uh, there's this very, like, very real racism you instantly feel coming off the movie mm. where all these missionaries know what's best for the Chinese. And so while Stanwyck shows up and they're about to get married, because this guy obviously is really in love with converting people. Like, he's way more in love with converting people than he is with Stanwyck. Um, so she goes to help him save some children. She gets knocked out and kidnapped by General Yen, who's played by Niles Asser, something like that. He's like a Garbo leading man. He's um, Swedish or something. So it was yeah, like I don't know if I've ever really seen him in anything else. Yeah, he's like in the Kiss or something. I don't know. So she gets knocked out. He kidnaps her basically because he sees her. He's like, I want that. You know, what can I do? So you, it's like very much like Yellow Peril kind of setup. But once she, once he gets there, 
he kind of seduces her with his intellect more so than anything else in the atmosphere because he's this Chinese warlord who's kind of trying to save the day and Walter Conley's his advisor who's giving him all the money and they're figuring it all out. But it's it's about Stanwyck kind of realizing that, you know, it's not Christianity that's going to fix things and it's not money that's going to fix things. It's about finding the goodness in other people no matter what their skin Which color is. Which are the exact two things that the production code was built on saying would fix things. Yeah. Christianity and money. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, no, it's just this very gorgeous, very sensuous film. Like Toshia Mori's in that. Oh my God, she's so good. Um, yeah. She plays like the girl who, who tricks Stanwyck into helping her out when she's she's helping the rebels. Um, yeah, that one's on my list, but it was buried between Nora Moran and Christopher Strong, so <laughs> I don't want to end it without talking about it. Yeah, no, that's such a beautiful, moody picture. And then there's this, she has, Stanwyck has a dream sequence halfway through where she visions the General Yen coming after with the long fingernails and the Fu Manchu yeah. looks. Mm. And then un- in busts a guy in a Western suit with a mask and he kung fu's the other guy to death and then <laughs> takes off his mask and it's General Yen again. And she kisses him and it's like this miscegenation, miscegenation, whatever it is. Miscegenation. Miscegenation, thank you. The miscegenation parts of the code are very clear in that moment where it's a Chinese dude kissing a white woman. Is right. Crazy. You don't really see that often, even yeah. contemporary. And I mean, the movie ends with her basically supplicating herself to him. Mm. Yeah, it's great. So you're saying uh, Design for Living? Yeah, Design for Living is another Lubitsch one who's who was just the king of this era. Oh, yeah. And it's not... Uh, Trouble in Paradise was the year before, and that really is his... That's his masterpiece, I think. Yeah, this, this flips it, though, because instead of like a guy being divided by two women it's a woman divided by two yeah. men it's a it's about a woman who's she they're in europe right and and she two guys are in love with her and they just decide to just sort of share share and their deal is <laughs> very explicitly they say no sex uh-huh. and then it just goes on for like them trying to trying to get through that arrangement it right. doesn't last long yeah it, it doesn't <laughs> crazy last long. fucking arrangement yeah. it ends with them just basically having a gentleman's like okay we'll, we'll deal with this and they both end up with her. Yeah. And it's <laughs> Gary and, Cooper it's and another, Frederick March. Yeah, yeah, it's young Gary Cooper who, how could you not pick him? And then in the middle, <laughs> she runs with Frederick March for a while. And then, like, it feels like it wasn't written for Cooper because Cooper is kind of supposed to be like the dorkier of the two, it feels yeah. like. <laughs> and it, I mean, he was, you know, he like literally was a cowboy and he's, you know. He right. Was, yeah. No, um, I went to, the, when I was at the film festival, there was a Frederick March fan who approached me and we talked for a while because she showed me pictures of frederick march from barrett's of were wimple they in her street. wallet no it was on her phone though she keeps, <laughs> she's she's like i told her i watched fairs of wimple street because i know this person this blogger for a while she's like oh my god did you see frederick march's penis in that and i'm like <laughs> no and she pulls out her phone where she has a picture of frederick march from barrett's and just zooms Wait, in what's really? the movie where you see gary cooper's dick I don't know. There totally is one. <laughs> also early. So apparently both of them. We'll have to do an episode on uh, penises and film. Yeah, on the design that, yeah. for living men and just like whipping it out in movies. <laughs> Shit, what movie? There's definitely one where he, where Gary Cooper whips it out. I can't remember. If you're that. listening right now and you're shouting it at the podcast, please send it in. Yeah. Yeah, post a comment. <laughs> so one more that you saw at TCM, by the way, that oh, you yeah. were telling me about was uh, 42nd Street. So 33 was the year of Busby Berkeley and Warner Brothers, which there are three great movies. Like yeah. The, well, musicals, there were like 100 musicals made in 1930 and then 11 made in 1931 because that's how awful they all were. <laughs> um, so in 33, Busby Berkeley, who's this big choreographer, had done some movies with Goldwyn, mostly Eddie Cantor films. He comes to Warner Brothers. They pretty much just give him carte blanche. And so he makes 42nd Street, which I saw at the festival. I'll get to him in a And Footlight Parade, which is James Cagney and Joan Blondell and Ruby Keeler and all them. 
and then Gold Diggers 33, which you already talked about. And these are like three of the most solid films of the early films. Yeah, those are bulletproof. Because they're all just gorgeous, like very funny comedies. And then they get into the choreography and they're just gorgeous, like insane kaleidoscope, whatever. Uh, so I saw Footlight Prey, which is a brand new restoration. It's coming out in two weeks on Blu-ray, which oh, is wow. awesome. Yeah, it's such a gorgeous movie. Um, they fixed some things in the other two that they do wrong. By in the this, time but, you listen to this, by the way, it probably is already out. So uh, definitely check it out on uh, yeah, Amazon. It's Warner, uh, Warner Archives putting it out. So nice. it'll probably be like 20 bucks, but you can probably wait and get it for 10 on sale. Which is Yeah, yeah. they do great sales. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, the transfer, the restoration was gorgeous. Um, watching this movie in a theater full of people. It's a very funny. It's. It's kind of the, most people consider it, even though they did some before, this is kind of the epitome of backstage musicals. So Ruby mm-hmm. Keeler starts off in the chorus line and by the end, she's the lead actress in the giant Broadway show. And Warner Baxter is just like trying not to freak out. He's like, you know, you're going to go out there, nothing, come back a star. Mm. It's just very big, very gorgeous. And I saw this in this huge theater. It's a big multiplex theater packed with people who are all really into the movie. And I actually got overwhelmed with emotion just because it's like, I'm never going to have that again in my life. Yeah, and it's such right. a it's a, you know it's not a sad movie, but it's such a fun, wonderful film in a theater, no less. Like it's so singular. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These movies were all really made to be watched very large. Yeah, and now that opportunity comes so seldom that when you that was what it was like with King Kong. I mean, even with King Kong, the opening credits, the title is lit from below. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's these small details. In Absolutely, them. Like, and the Berkeley stuff. You know, like. In a theater, you can see everybody's faces when they're in those Those circles. Yeah. 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 No, the Berkeley movies are great. Yeah. So that seems like a really great festival to go to if you have the opportunity. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very it's very tiring because it literally is like three and a half days and they show like fifty movies. Wow. You you know, it's impossible to see them all. And they do a lot of like directors come and talk. Um, they had William Friedkin there introducing French Connection. Mm. Uh, Shirley MacLaine talked in front of the apartment and the Children's Hour. And Margaret was there for uh, Cincinnati Kid. Who else was there? Uh, Norman Lloyd, who's still around. Mm. He was in Hitchcock's Saboteur. He's the guy who falls from the Statue of Liberty. Mm. He was just there telling stories about I have about an Hitchcock. article coming out about that. Yeah. Yes, you do, yeah. Yeah, so he's just there. He's spry as all. You know, he's a lot of fun. I actually saw... The coolest for me was one who wasn't actually an official festival guest. The Facebook group, the Going to the TCM Film Festival... Uh, invited Cora Sue Collins, who played the kid in a lot of like early 30s MGM movies. So she played young Norma Shear in uh, Smiling Through, and she played young Garbo in Queen Christina. Right, right, yeah. At the, at the beginning there, when her father dies. Yeah, and she just... She's like, a little tiny kid on the throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's in a ton of movies where, she just, where she's the kid of the couple. So it's so cool. And she's out of movies by the time she's 18. When she's 18, she gets married and moves to Phoenix, becomes a housewife. But she brought in like her giant. So cool. Yeah. Like she had a joint birthday party with Mae Robeson because they t- she turned 70 the same day Corsu turned like five or something. Mm. And so Ray Robeson had made her a giant wood like signature book and everybody who was there signed it. So you have like actual signatures of, like Gene Harlow was at her birthday party or wow. Freddie Bartholomew. Yeah. And you were telling us about the Harlow signature. Yeah. Apparently the, the it's well, widely believed that um, Gene Harlow's mo- very protective mother would actually do all the signatures like the fans sent in and she would just do them for Harlow. But they found a picture and the person who found the picture brought it to the festival and showed Cora Sue because nobody could ever prove that that was an actual Gene Harlow signature because she was there. And there's Gene Harlow in the picture with Mae Robeson and Cora Sue Collins and a bunch of other kid actors. So, wow. It was like Cora Sue was tearing up. It was yeah. really cool to see just this woman who put this thing so far in her past because, you know, that's 18. She's been out of the movie since the 50s. All right. So that was a dense 
episode. If you never explored it before, you're going to have tons of new ones to know about now. And if yeah, you, I got a whole second list now. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, if you are familiar with this year, I'm sure you even heard ones that you never heard of. I don't know that we can find people that are more versed. I figured that I've seen a fifth of the movies released in 1933. That's incredible. I Keep mean, trucking, <laughs> we could do a, I'm sure we'll do a part two somewhere down the line of this. Thank you guys for doing this. This is incredible. Any parting words about the, uh, the year specifically parting impressions or something you want to leave people with. Maybe if people are still not sold on 33, I don't know who these people are. Maybe they're crazy enough to not want to go see these movies. What can you sell 33 with? Well, Again, I think, you know, the confines of a year is such an arbitrary right. deadline. But like with 77, it sort of really works with 33. Because what I was saying at the beginning about 33 kind of being a major watershed year for, for history. But the, the important thing about this era for filmmaking is that so much was happening all at the exact same time. And what's really cool is the, the reason, that even with somebody who knows this so much more in depth than I do, I'll, I'll know a few movies that Danny then because there's such an undercurrent to all these movies of like sort of hidden alleys and like right. what we didn't really get to talk to about much and what we'll have to do another one to talk about is the pre-code was sort of the dawning of the concept of a horror movie mm. as distinct from a mystery. It was when mm. they started to strip away the concept of, you know, people would go to a haunted house and find a mysterious scooby-doo happenstance when right. they solve it it was when when they started thinking about you know what if something supernatural was there yeah so you have that start to come about and it's also when through busley berkeley and the way he shot his musicals it's how they started to figure out how to shoot fist fights in movies yeah choreography plays a big part yeah you know they started to figure out you know just do a small section of a fight at a time and you start to sell this idea of a, a major brawl and there's all these simultaneous innovations so you go into this year with your preconceptions and not only will they be shattered, but your experience of what you're interested in will give you like a very distinct path through the pre-code. And you'll find mm -hmm. stuff that other people who are very deep into it won't even find because there's right. just so much weird stuff happening at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's hard to remember, but like this is back, there's no television. Every studio is putting out four or five movies a month. Mm. Yeah. So there's so much and it's all from very distinct voices, very interesting era. And this is really the last time, this is their last hurrah until like the 60s where they could kind of go out and explore like very dark themes, like, right. like yeah. uh, cover the waterfront and Chinese exclusion or jitter tea of General Yen. You really don't get that very much or is nearly as well done when you get later into the decade especially because the late 30s movies are awful mm. <laughs> so yeah, if you're I mean, the the good ones are very good but yeah. the, the baseline quality really drops after the code yeah so if you're not sold by now i don't know why you're even listening to this show this <laughs> this podcast probably isn't even for you this whole smug film podcast if you're not sold thank you guys again this was amazing i'm sure everybody's listening is just writing furiously and has been <laughs> writing furiously the whole episode and uh danny we got to have you back next time you're in the uh, united states of america that'll probably be a while but yeah totally all right and john we'll have you back soon since you are uh yeah i'll be haunting the halls here I'll be around. <laughs> yeah you're on all the time all right thank you guys for listening goodbye